Hello and welcome to Coffee with Maxwell. This episode is about the idea of accessibility in specialty coffee, which seems like a simple idea really, like how can we make coffee more accessible, how can we make it easier for people to make great coffee, how can we put great coffee in front of people in a way that uh, isn't intimidating. That all sounds quite straightforward. The thing is, I think there's a dynamic going on here that's a little bit more complex that I'd like to pick into. And I've always been fascinated with the concept of accessibility in specialty coffee, but also the concept of accessibility in any specialist niche. The The analogy I use uh, is, is board games, right? So uh, there's two board games, Twister and Magic the Gathering. Now, Twister, everybody's probably heard of listening to this, and if you haven't, we could get the board game out. It's, it's Christmas, it's New Year, and we could teach friends and family how to play that board game in a matter of moments. It's extremely accessible, right? The thing is, for it to be really accessible, it needs to be really simple, which means it lacks complexity, which means it gets boring which means it goes back in the cupboard and we don't get it back out until next year or maybe in the next five years. Now let's compare that to Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering isn't something I play, it's something one of my staff uh, is obsessed with and I've met a few people who are into it and it's a very complex board game with a pro series and there's no way you could learn how to play that in a few moments like Twister. To take part in it, you, not just because of the learning and the time, but also to to go and, uh, you know, the certain clubs, because you need to take part against other people, and it requires quite a bit of effort. <laughs> uh, and I think everybody could learn to play Magic the Gathering. It's not something only for the uh, you know, talented or bright. It's just, it requires your time to learn it and it requires a commitment to begin a journey. Now, this is very similar to lots of other uh, hobbies or niches or specialist fields. If I turn up to learn how to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I'd like to do, um, but it, it could be tap dancing, horse riding, uh, ballet, could be learning a language. It's a time commitment, right? And that makes them less accessible, but it depends on, you know, gaming's a great one. Loads of people are happy to put in the time to take part in that, to learn it, get better at it, improve. Um, so its potential audience is huge because of that uh, aptitude. Now you have like extreme niches, things that are real, 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 real niche, you know, uh, which are something that a few people are really passionate about, but most people are like, yeah, man, that's cool, uh, but it's not for me. And a lot of what we do, a lot of what we're interested in, food, drink, you know, content, it, it sits on a spectrum of extremely niche to extreme mass, mass appeal, right? And I think it's interesting to use the board game analogy because Warhammer, Magic the Gathering are geeky. So no one's worried that they're not into that. They don't go, oh, it's pretentious and exclusive. But it is exclusive. But because it's geeky, you're not going to call it those things, right? Because you're not affronted by the fact it's exclusive, right? Where does specialty coffee sit in all of this? Now, 
I think specialty coffee, especially those who decide it's a passion, a hobby of theirs, is much closer to Magic the Gathering. But a lot of the people who drink coffee are closer to Twister. And that's not because they couldn't treat it like Magic the Gathering, it's because they don't want to. And this is the key point for me in this video. There's a difference between making something accessible and helping people start the journey and be involved compared to an expectation that everybody should agree with you and want to do things in the way you do them. I've been fascinated with this topic ever since I got into specialty coffee. The fact that when I found it, it was very niche and underground, but I firmly believed that it was interesting and I love the way it tasted and I was so excited by it, I thought there will be a load of people who are into this. But I never believed that everybody would convert specialty coffee. Like, I've never believed or expected that. And in the journey of our shop, where I am now, Clonor and Smalls, we've explored this and gone, okay, well, if people don't know, because I think one of the fallacies of accessibility in coffee is a lot of coffee shops not being clear. So they, they try and make it look normal and then sort of slip you some specialty coffee which I just think is a bit unfair. So we went the other way and we're very clear. This is what we do, it's super specialists, you know, explain it, have a clear mission and values, and then customers can opt in or opt out. Without going on to a hospitality event, you will never in hospitality have a, an offering or a venue that pleases everybody. And that idea is absurd, right? Even if you appeal to a larger mass of people, you inherently are leaving out in that circumstance, minorities who are like, well, this isn't really for me, what I'm interested in is something more specific. You just can't do both. So you have to have a clear focus, right? You go, this is our focus, this is what we do. I'm a firm believer that you can do a couple things well rather than, you know, or you can do lots of things less well. And customers actually decide, you know, you go, okay, I'm gonna go to a really specialist place or not. And People can often visit both. It's not a choice, it's depending on what they're looking for at what moment in time and so on and so forth. Now accessibility as a topic in cafes is definitely a minefield. Like we've had our cafe for 12 years and I've noticed it's a really difficult conversation because at the bedrock of it, especially a cafe is a very challenging place to do a specialist thing because it's really trying to appeal to a broad group of people, because you're not selling a, a ticket item at a high enough price. Your environment, um, you know, it's a sort of fast food uh, type of space. There's not a lot of time for a lot of chat. And most cafes are making, because the ticket price is low, they need to sell a lot of it. So lots of cups of coffee or food. Uh, and if the majority of their audience is within a one mile radius, which is what a few studies have shown, whether that's people working in that area or um, people who live there or visit, you know, the theory being, okay, well, we need to have a bit of what everybody would like, which we can't do. So you end up with a pretty broad offering and it might be a little bit more specialist or a little less specialist, but still pretty broad in that attempt. Now you could do that in a few different ways. You could either uh, try, which is what a lot of shops do because they don't want to slow down service at the till by talking people through a complex menu. So you use the, you use the construct that Starbucks and everyone else have built which is people are pretty familiar with the menu. 
There may be a few new drinks on there in, in the recent years, like a flat white or something. But people <clears throat> basically come in and they already know what they want. And they go, oh, I'll have a flat white, I'll have an Americano, I'll have an espresso, I'll have a macchiato. Um, and then the transaction is, is very normal. And the coffee that's used to go in that drink would be uh, a coffee that's a house espresso uh, that's been developed to be specialty, but have a broad appeal, be somewhere in the middle. Um, and, you know, there's very little about what just happened there that's specialist, right? The other uh, the way to do things is to have like a more complex menu. Or to have an under-the-counter menu, like, oh, if someone's interested, we've got something for them. But if not, we just give them the normal coffee or the house coffee. Uh, you could have, like, a, a freezer menu. Or the brew bar's often been used in the UK market, especially for this. Not a lot of... Phil's coffee hasn't been that popular. It's all been espresso-based, milk-based drinks. And so on the brew bar, it was like, okay, well, that's less important to the throughput and the volume that we can have some interesting coffees on the brew bar. And then the filter coffee can be the place for specialty coffee in the shop, uh, which which I still think is probably relatively common. Now, I don't envy the challenge of running a specialist coffee shop. We've uh, obviously had our project, Clonner and Smalls, but I by no means think that is um, a, a mass model. For, you know, it's quite a sort of specialist concept store. And I think what I just explained of a cafe trying to do a lot to, to make it work, you know, I'd love to do an episode on the economics of a cafe, mean that it's a really difficult place for it to be specialist. But the, the point I'd like to make here is that, you know, by, by, by diluting something or changing it to the point where it's less specialist, so it, so it has more of a normal mass appeal, isn't really making the specialist thing accessible. It's manipulating and manoeuvring the specialist thing to be less specialist, so it has a broader appeal. That, that is a different concept. It really is. And recently, Matt Winton, who's the World Brewers' Cup champion, was posting about something that wasn't directly related to this, but it's all linked, because you cannot have a conversation about whether specialty coffee is accessible enough or not without discussing preference and subjectivity. I think there is a little bit of a naive, false understanding that underlines a lot of specialty coffee, a belief that, that it's just better and that everybody would agree if only they were presented with it properly. I.e., if somebody goes, well, you know what, I'm not that into that, I don't really think that tastes that great. That's not for me. It feels like specialty coffee is often got the blinkers on and it's like, no, no, you, you will like it. You just need to learn more about it. Or you um, just need to try it in a slightly different format or you didn't like it because it wasn't presented to you excessively. So that, that's what put you off. And really at the heart of this is almost like an ideological crusade. Uh, and there is a lot of ideology in coffee, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. You say, okay, you know, what do I believe in? What am I passionate about? But sometimes you can take that too far and it can be disrespectful of other opinions and other approaches, which are also valid. I mean, especially coffee is a construct, right? If it was simply that specialty coffee was just the best coffee, you'd get everybody to do Q graders and they'd all score them roughly in the right place. When I did my first Q graders, uh, there were two wine experts on there and they flunked it because they didn't know the construct. They hadn't learned the construct. Like, and 
however much people want to say, oh, great coffee just speaks for itself. Like it's like wine, it's contextual. You know, a Gesha tastes like a delicate floral tea. If you don't like those flavor profiles, you're not gonna score it 90. It scored 90 in the, and, and above in the context of coffee based on what we've decided to reward in coffee. And then those of us who get drawn to specialty coffee or taste it and go, God, that tastes great. It's self-selecting. You basically draw people to this movement who agree with that construct of quality. Although, you know, we clearly don't all actually agree fully. We, you know, we often debate, especially, you know, there's a lot of debate around processing and stuff right now. So even within our field, we're relatively aligned and what we think tastes pretty good, but there is also difference there. Even then, I think it becomes a bit of an echo chamber uh, and it is useful to go <laughs> and try and understand the point of view of someone who doesn't jive with that. Matt Winton, uh, who posted about acidity and preference, he was posting about the fact that there's a Swiss coffee company which is advertising itself as proudly non-acidic, okay? And so this sparked a conversation about acidity, but also about preference. Now, coffee is very interesting in this regard, and especially coffee does seem to have a specific challenge, a little bit different to say wine. Cheap wine does tend to be vinegary and sour. And then as you move through, it becomes more refined. There's different flavor profiles. To be honest, once you get over a certain price point, it becomes about context again. If you don't know the context of why that flavor profile is valued, you won't be able to score it and understand that it's worth X amount. And that rarity is obviously huge. You know, if everything tasted like Gesha, Gesha would be normal and it wouldn't be expensive. So there's, and I will get onto this in a second, there's always, Exclusivity is inherently built into these fields because if we reward rarity, which in a you know really sort of basic childlike way is lovely, is this curiosity to explore and discover new things. The negative side of it is you find something rare which is then exclusive and then that becomes elitist. Although I don't really think that's actually the biggest issue in coffee at the moment. I think all coffee should pretty much cost more across the board. And I don't think based on what it, you know, I look at the British economy and I look at what British people, you know, uh, cost of living, uh, wages, what people spend money on. I don't think coffee is this uh, elitist thing at all. But what's interesting there is I always used to say, and customers have said this to me over the years when I presented them with certain coffees, that it's almost like a different drink. A good wine doesn't taste like a different drink to a really sour wine, right? And the acidity bit is the really interesting point here. Some people are like, oh, coffee's got acidity. And I'm like, well, you know, if I take a lower grade coffee and I roast it long to reduce the citric acid and dark, and I then brew it with a hard water with a high bicarbonate, I mean, objectively, you wouldn't describe that as an acidic beverage. In fact, if you asked most people to describe what they think traditional coffee tasted like, they would not use words like sour. They would use words like bitter, rich, strong, roasty. These are not bright, acidic, floral, aromatic notes. So 
What we do in coffee is very interesting. The specialty side is almost like a different beverage and that does cause us some problems with accessibility. And I think the way I personally like to deal with that is I didn't like those traditional coffee flavors or mass coffee flavors. So when I found this aromatic characteristics, the brightness, the acidity, I just love the way it tasted and that's me, right? But I realize that saying to someone that that's just better than what you have is just, uh, it's, if you think about it, it's actually ridiculous because they just don't taste alike, right? And I also think that sitting behind the crusade for great coffee is also a bunch of other values, right? And specialty obviously aligns itself with transparent, traceable, sustainable, coffee, but also like, you know, support independence versus large coffee companies. And I can see a lot of values there that make it more of a crusade than another industry, right? Which make people say, well, you shouldn't drink that coffee. You should drink this coffee because of this. Whereas in wine, I think you'd say, okay, if you like that wine, fine. Because people aren't really worried about when you pick that wine, what that means for the supply chain. Although I would say, and I, like I've explored in some of my other videos, I think the sort of righteousness with which specialty coffee does that is unfounded and the, the specialty coffee movement like a lot of these niche movements like craft beer in particular sets itself against the large companies and says they're evil they're really bad we're really good and it's much more gray than that you know the starbucks sourcing program is very impressive and actually these specialty coffee roasteries that say they're doing xyz can't prove half it and most of the coffee they sell is at a price that really how much of that is going back to the supply chain so I think that's a different point, but the implication here is that those other virtues and values of what specialty coffee is supposed to achieve partly drives that crusade-like mentality for why people need to move to specialty coffee, right? So there's two sides there, really. Um, I think as well as the value side of the narrative of just bad and good coffee, um, is supported by some of the concepts or some of the grading narrative around things like faults, defects, and taints. You know, they're very objective physical things that anyone can look at and go, oh yeah, okay, um, insect damage, broken beans, unripe beans, Quakers. You can easily see how they're probably not a good thing in any grade of coffee, but there's a much more complex story around quality than that. You know, it's not like all coffee tastes the same and then you just take out the defects and the taints and it, the quality just goes up. It's, there's much more complexity going on there, uh, which obviously is, is, is underlying around the world when we tell this basic story. We don't seem to have genres or nuance like other industries. And maybe that's just because it's a relatively, uh, you know, the speciality side of coffee is a little bit less mature potentially. Um, and it could develop into more of those areas in time. Roast is obviously, you know, a crazy one. People, I think, are quite right to say, you know, if somebody's experience of a specialty coffee was a very light, you know, objectively sour, especially when made as a concentrate, like an espresso, um, then the, that could be negative, right? Uh, although, if, you know, people want to roast that light, fine. Um, but then on the other spectrum, there's, you know, definitely sort of lighter specialty roasts that are more accessible. And I would... But, instead of accessible, say that, you know, 
more people would like. Uh, but then you get to the darker roasts, which there's clearly a preference out there for as well, which is that sort of let's have two different products here. This is kind of a strange place to be. Because, you know, is there, you know, sometimes there's chat of a middle ground, like, oh, maybe like an 82, 83 point coffee could please everyone. And it's sort of like, well, you know, if you roast it light, it's still not what the person who's having a darker roast wants, regardless of where it sits on the on the point scale, right? Okay, now, so uh, how would I sum this up? I would say that the word accessibility is a bit of a problematic word. And maybe we've had that because we had a bunch of baristas who got jobs because they were fascinated by coffee, but didn't want to work in hospitality. So they were pretty rude. So we, especially coffee as a movement, got a reputation for being kind of hipster and pretentious. And it's been trying to shake that off since. Maybe that's what's happened. I don't think we need to worry about that, right? I don't think accessibility is the real problem here. I think what we need to do instead, or what we probably already do without realising it really well, is the focus here to make sure that we do justice to the opportunity of the story of specialty coffee and we let as many people take part who want to take part in it. It's really a question of engagement. How do we engage people in what's so great about specialty coffee? And we do that through sharing our passion and excitement for specialty coffee, not by being shy and worried about it and sort of hiding it in a more normal commercial environment and being overly concerned about accessibility. And so I believe really that some of the things that people think make specialty coffee less accessible actually make it more accessible by virtue of engaging people. Right. You look at specialty coffee and people who are in it are passionate and excited about it. They debate it. That's interesting. Right. From you know, anybody can look at that and go, hmm, they're clearly very passionate about that. There's probably something quite interesting there. And I actually think that's what's happened with specialty coffee. You know, it's it's the, you know, that irrepressible interest and passion has broken through. And I think um you know, I, mean, I can never speak on behalf of a community or a movement and, you know, what really is the movement and should you even use the word speciality. But for me, it's about focusing on getting better at what you do all the time, sharing your passion, being clear about your vision and mission and not worrying about the people who are doing something different to you. So who maybe don't think bright coffee or this narrative of specialty coffee is as good. Cool. That's totally up to them. And if we go all the way back to accessibility, I do firmly believe that respecting other people's uh, opinions and tastes is key to specialty coffee not being pretentious, not being inaccessible. And clearly specialty coffee is growing. There's more people being drawn to the flame of this passionate side of coffee than ever before. But I think what's amazing is I look back to when I got in specialty coffee and it was really underground and really niche and it's bigger than I probably thought it would ever be. And it's clearly gaining more and more momentum. There are a lot of people out there excited and passionate about specialty coffee too. But not everyone will be. And that is okay.